All right. Just so you know, last week, in case you're like, man, leave it, letting off on uh, on the worst of the seven churches, we are going to do one more sermon next week that's going to be a summary of what we've learned from these seven churches overall. So we're not going to end with this, but Laodicea is clearly the worst of the seven churches. Everybody agrees on that. Five of the churches are praised to some degree. Two of them are only praised. Three of them are praised and criticized. And Smyrna and Laodicea are only criticized with no commendation, but at least Smyrna earlier on got a concession. Well, I know at least some of you are still alive. Most of you are dead, but some of you are still alive. Here, there's not even a concession. And so Laodicea ends with just a a church that seems to be on the brink of disaster. Each week, I've been trying to open up with a theme that that seems to be prominent in all seven letters together. So one last time, I want to just direct our attention to something that, that could easily be missed in these letters that I think think is um, indicative and, and important in scripture overall. If you ask the question, what, what really sets Christianity apart from other faiths, other worldviews, there's lots of ways that you could answer that. But probably the best way to answer it is, uh, is there's this famous story where C.S. Lewis, I forget if he's at Oxford or at Cambridge at the time, but he's kind of, he walks into a room and there's a bunch of fancy philosophers and professors and religious leaders in England in the, in the nation at the time. And they're all sitting around, and I think maybe even non-Christians too of other religions, talking about what is most distinctive about Christianity. And they're like, is it this? Is it this? Is it this? And apparently the story goes to C.S. Lewis walks in a room he goes oh that's easy it's grace that grace is what is most distinctive about Christianity which I think is a good answer but if we were going to ask the question how would you describe God's grace what what adjectives would you connect to it I think many of us and, and all of these I think are true would put a lot of good fun positive adjectives next to it God's grace is healing it's liberating certainly costly to God is forgiving it's transforming, it's joyful. And I think God's grace are all of those things. But one thing we see in these seven letters, almost without exception, is that it's not the main thing to say about God's grace. It's not the only thing to say about God's grace. But in general, when God's grace comes to us, it is disruptive. It rearranges furniture. It is disorienting it is uncomfortable. There's a famous phrase, a famous quote from Ernest Hemingway. I've never been able to figure out if he's being serious or sarcastic or both here, but he says this, so far about morality, I have only learned this, that what is moral is what you feel good after, and what is immoral is what you feel bad after which is a disastrous thing to believe about the universe. But I suspect that many Christians kind of think that about God's grace. God's grace is what makes me feel good and comfortable. And whatever makes me feel uncomfortable, whatever disorients and disrupts is, is something I need to be saved from by God's grace. And yet over and over, it is because Jesus shows up in these letters, it is because he speaks, and it's because he speaks in grace, wanting to salvage and redeem and reclaim these Christians and these churches, that things get disruptive. One of my favorite writers ever in my senior year of college, I did an independent study on her, and I still love reading her, is Flannery O'Connor. And if you ever watch any Coen Brother films today, in many ways, the Coen Brothers are the contemporary version of Flannery O'Connor, um, kind of the the humor and the darkness and the violence and and things getting turned upside down, like the Coen brothers and every Flannery O'Connor story, things get disrupted. And she often points out in lectures, 
outside of her stories and in letters to friends during her life that this is intentional, that is her as a Christian that causes her to write stories that are so dark, that are so disruptive, in which people have the rug pulled out from under their feet all the time. She says in a really famous uh, lecture she gave called The Catholic Novelist in the South, she says, readers tend to want their grace warm and binding, not dark and disruptive. Because all human nature vigorously resists God's grace because grace changes us and change is always painful. She says in another place, my audience tend to be people who think God is dead and to the hard of hearing you shout and for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. And that's the description Jesus uses of the church of Laodicea. They think they see, but they're blind. They think they're rich, but they're poor. And those are people that you can't usually communicate very straightforwardly to. And so she says, and a great example of this, if you've never read it, would be A Good Man is Hard to Find, a short story by her with the misfit and the grand grandmother where you see this lived out. In my own stories, I have found that violence is strangely capable of returning my characters to reality and preparing them to accept their moment of grace. Their heads are so hard that almost nothing else will do the work. The modern age does not have a sharp eye for the almost imperceptible intrusions of God's grace into our world. It no longer has much feeling for the nature of the disruption which precedes and follows moments of God's grace. And I think we see that in these letters, that Jesus's grace is almost without exception disruptive when it shows up in somebody's life. The only exceptions to that are the Church of Philadelphia and the Church of, oh my goodness, I should have remembered this one. Um, is it Smyrna? Yeah, it's, uh, yes, it's Smyrna, because those are the two churches that are already disrupted by what's going on around them. And so disrupting people who are already disrupted isn't what's needed there, but for churches that are currently to some degree comfortable, that are currently to some degree liking what they're experiencing, Jesus's grace always appears as disruptive. And the thing is, is no matter how long we've been Christians, we never get used to that. We never like it. There's a, there's a great line from one of the great boxers of my childhood, Mike Tyson, where for as funny as he is as a guy, he's often very insightful. And he used to like to say, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. And everybody's got a plan for what you think God is going to do in your life until Jesus actually shows up and throws cold water in your face, until he actually turns your life upside down. Even as Kirk led us off with the Heidelberg Catechism, often what we perceive to be disastrous in our lives is often actually God's love trying to get our intention. And so George Hunziger, and then we'll look at the, the church of, of Laodicea specifically, he says this about grace. And I think this just fits what we've seen in these seven letters. Grace Grace that is not disruptive is barely ever actually grace, a point that Flannery O'Connor grasps well. Grace, strictly speaking, does not mean continuity with how our lives are currently going, but radical discontinuity. Not reform, but revolution. Not the perfecting of virtues we're already pursuing, but the forgiveness of sins. Not improvement, but resurrection from the dead. It means, grace means repentance, judgment, and death as the portal to life. The grace of God really does come to lost sinners, but in coming to us, it disrupts the core. 
It slays us to make us alive and to set the captive free. Grace may, of course, work silently and secretly like a germinating seed as well as like a bolt from the blue, but it is almost always wholly incalculable as it is reliable unmerited and full of blessing, yet it is necessarily as unsettling as it is comforting. It does not finally teach of its own sufficiency without appointing a thorn in the flesh for us to deal with. Grace is disruptive because God does not compromise with sin, nor ignore it, nor call it good. On the contrary, God removes it by submitting to the cross in Jesus to show that love is stronger than death, and those whom God loves may be drawn to God through their suffering and be privileged to share in his sufferings in the world, because grace and its radical disruption surpasses all that we can imagine or think. And so just final way to put it, grace very rarely in my experience, from what I understand of scripture, from what I know of other Christian stories, grace very rarely appears in our lives in a way that tops off the aspirations we already have, that fulfills and completes the plans we already made before Jesus even was part of this story, and that satisfies the desires that we hope Jesus might be a means to an end to. Very, very rarely is that how Jesus shows up in anybody's story. He shows up in a way that is disruptive, but nonetheless is gracious, is good, and I hope that we see that in these churches, how often the appearance of Jesus in our midst is disruptive rather than confirming uncomfortable rather than comfortable. We need to have discernment that these are often the seasons when God is most at work in our lives individually and our families. And so let's look at how Jesus in his grace disrupts the church of Laodicea. And because it is the worst of the seven churches and Jesus is so forthright with it, it's easy to miss that Jesus is being gracious to this church. He says, I love you. I'm not giving up on you. I'm knocking on the door, hoping you're going to open it, that even the hard things that are said here are ultimately hard things that come with grace, not with abandoning us to our own sin or forsaking us. Again, as I mentioned, this is one of the churches, along with Ephesus, that we know of from elsewhere in the New Testament. It is mentioned in Colossians. At the end of Colossians, Paul mysteriously references a letter that should be read out loud in Laodicea. A lot of New Testament scholars think that's actually our letter of Ephesians. Um, and so it seems to have been founded by one of Paul's co-workers named Epaphras. It's near Colossae. We know from it elsewhere. And again, there is this sense that they are in the worst state of any of the seven churches. So a couple of things to point out, and then we'll just draw a few main points one last time. From this, next week we'll do a summary of kind of the whole series, what we learned about these seven from these seven churches. The first thing is that, as always, the letters to the seven churches begin with descriptions of Jesus. You can see it in verse 14. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning, although that's almost certainly ruler, the same word in Greek that can mean beginning can also mean ruler. It's actually arche, where we get archangel from. And the reason it can mean both is like it's the beginning of something, something that's preeminent. But here, the beginning and end of almost every letter emphasizes Jesus's authority, emphasizes Jesus's sovereignty. And so it's probably referring to the fact that he is the emperor of God's creation, not so much the beginning of it, although that's also true. One thing that's interesting about these titles is this is the only church that doesn't take the titles for Jesus at the beginning from the vision from chapter one. 
both of these uh, phrases, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, they do show up elsewhere in Revelation, but he grabs something else. And, and one that I want us to think about real quick is that Jesus is described as the amen. And you might not know this, but amen is a word that comes from Hebrew. And as far as I know, without exception, is directly transliterated into every other language in the human race. Greek just translates it in the New Testament as amen. In English, we just say amen. Last week, I asked Helen, how do Koreans say amen at the end of prayers? And she's like, amen. Um, I'm pretty sure that in every language this, where there are Christians, this just gets brought directly in. And because of that, we can kind of miss what it refers to. Certainly, it refers to some sense of may it be so. I agree with this. But at its core, it, it communicates a sense of reliability a sense that this has been affirmed, that this is legitimate. And we saw it just a few minutes ago as we, or we heard it in the gospel of John, one of Jesus's most distinctive practices that I didn't realize for years after I became a Christian is that I think it was three times in John five, when you heard it out loud, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, it's probably something familiar that you remember Jesus talks like that. Truly, truly, I say to you, literally in Greek, that's amen, amen, I say to you. Most human beings say amen at the end of statements. Most human beings say amen at the end of prayers. Jesus says amen before he even opens his mouth to say something else. And here he's referred to as the amen. And I think this next phrase, he is the faithful and true witness, fleshes out what that means. I think what this means is Jesus is the one figure in the universe that even before he opens up his mouth, you should already 100% believe whatever comes out of it after that. You do not need to be like, even right now, you should have some level of critique or, or a critical posture, not in a negative way, but it's in the sense of, I know Nick is not Jesus, and he probably says things wrong on a regular basis, and I do. You should not hear whatever I say as having an amen before it, but whatever Jesus says, you should hear as having an amen before it even comes out of his mouth, that Jesus is the most reliable witness in the universe, I think the reason that that is said here to this church at the beginning is that one, they trust their own instincts, and two, their own instincts are profoundly distorted. Notice what is said about them. You think that you are rich. You think that you have prospered. You think that you need nothing. None of those things are true. None of those statements, none of those evaluations deserve an amen at the end of the statement. I'm rich. Nope. Can't say amen to that. I prosper. Nope. Can't say amen to that. I don't need anything. Nope. It's not a true statement about the universe. None of these things are true. And one of the things that is so disruptive here is that Jesus knows this church better than they know themselves. And we tend to, especially in the modern world, trust our own knowledge about ourselves more than anybody else's, it often, rightly so. But here we're reminded that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. His evaluation of us is more reliable, is more true than our own evaluation of ourselves are. There are a number of things in this letter that are very famous, but often taken out of context or misunderstood. Let's look at a couple of them. One of the most famous statements in the seven letters is verse 15. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot but because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It is probably pretty likely that you mishear that metaphor. We mishear that metaphor on multiple levels as modern people. One, cold and hot are not allusions to good and bad. 
Both cold and hot are good there. When it comes to liquid, you want liquid to be either cold or hot. What you do not want it to be is the same temperature of the room because then it's not refreshing. Lukewarm is bad. Being either hot or cold is good here. Cold water plays a lot of important purposes. Hot water pays, plays a lot of important purposes. Lukewarm water is only good for one thing, spitting it out of your mouth. There is no other use for it than that. And so Jesus is not saying, I wish you guys were actively wicked rather than lukewarm, because even being cold would be being better than lukewarm. He's not saying that. What he's saying is cold water, there's a use for it. Hot water, there's a use for it. Lukewarm water, the only thing you do with it is spit it out of your mouth. That's all you do with it. And so second, lukewarm is not a metaphor like it tends to be today for half-hearted. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's a metaphor for useless. It's a metaphor for of no use. Can't, nothing can be done with it that is connected to your purposes. And so when Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth, what he is saying is similar to the other church that we saw where this is true, is there has been, for whatever reason, mission drift, that this is a church that is currently of no use to Jesus. He is not saying they're half-hearted. For all we know, they might be really zealous in their false perceptions. They might be really excited in their misdiagnosis of themselves and their situation. But the point is that as they are currently engaging is that they are useless to Jesus's purposes. And so there is this warning that he might spit them out of their mouth. One last thing, chapter three, verse 20, probably another Top three famous statement in these seven letters. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is often taken, at least in my experience among American Christians today, as kind of an evangelistic call. But it's not. This is a call to Christians. This is not a call to non-Christians. It could be true. Jesus, I'm sure, is knocking on the door of many non-Christian lives. But here, it's to a church that is lukewarm, to a church that is not hearing his voice, to a church that is in mission drift. And here it is a call to repentance, not a call to conversion. This is a call to Christians. And especially because if you have your Bibles open, the very next scene of Revelation, chapter four, verse one, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. It is very likely that this final invitation in verse 20, I stand at the door and knock, is kind of a summary invitation to all seven churches, to all churches, that Jesus knocks. The question is whether we open the door and respond to his voice. And it is this kind of reminder that ultimately, and we'll end with this in a moment, that how we respond to Jesus's voice and to his disruptive grace matters. So just a couple of main points, and I'm going to keep this a bit shorter today since we need to finish up early, that we learn from Laodicea. The first is, is this, maybe, I don't know how long ago it was, six months ago, eight months ago, we did a very short series on prayer, and I quoted this, this doesn't come from me, um, who does this come from? I think Paul Miller, that that part of the secret of being faithful in prayer is learned desperation. Most of us do not feel the actual sense of need of God's grace and of his provision on a daily basis that we actually have, that we actually should. Like the Laodiceans, our attitude often is, I got everything I need. Anything that comes up, I'll deal with it. I have the resources. And this sense of poverty, of neediness, 
of desperation is very difficult to sustain, especially in a culture like ours that is so marked by prosperity, that is so marked by technology. And so it's at the beginning of your bulletin, but John Calvin, at the beginning of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, famously says this. I often quote this. I'm going to quote it again today. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, I mean, this is your second quote, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of these two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Part of the Christian life is not just knowing God rightly, it's also knowing ourselves rightly. And Calvin goes on and he says, but while these two forms of knowledge are joined by many bonds, which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. They're so closely connected. In the first place, no one can look upon himself, self-knowledge, without immediately, if you understand yourself rightly, turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God in whom he lives and moves. For quite clearly, the mighty gifts with which we are endowed hardly come from ourselves. Indeed, our very being is nothing but subsistence, a gift that is sustained by the one true God. Then by these benefits shed like dew from heaven upon us, we are led as by rivulets to the spring itself. Indeed, our very poverty better discloses the infinitude of benefits that are reposing in God. The miserable ruin into which the rebellion of the first man cast us especially compels us to look upward. I'm going to continue reading this, but one quick note. In our modern age, we love self-knowledge. It was Alexander Pope during the Enlightenment who said that the ultimate study of that is fitting for human beings is human beings, that our primary focus should be on understanding ourselves. And here is Calvin, in a sense, affirming that, saying it's not just knowledge of God, it is also knowledge of ourselves that is essential. But notice what Calvin is doing, and he's going to flesh this out. He is not saying, first you know yourself, and then you project that upon the heavens and you know God rightly. He is actually saying, now there is a sense in which, because of the image of God, we can look at the gifts of human beings. We can look at something about human beings and say, that's kind of like what God is like. But for Calvin, the main way that self-knowledge propels us into knowledge of God is by revealing to us our poverty, our need, and our brokenness. And so he goes on and he says, thus, not only will we, in fasting and hungering, seek thence what we lack, but in being aroused by fear, we will learn humility. For as a veritable world of miseries is to be found in mankind, and we are thereby despoiled of divine raiment, clothing, our shameful nakedness, exposes a teeming horde of infamies. Each of us must then be so stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness as to attain indirectly through that at least some knowledge of God. Thus, from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more, depravity and corruption, we subsequently recognize that the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full abundance of every good, and purity of righteousness rests in the Lord alone. To this extent, we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God. And we cannot seriously aspire to him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. For what man in all the world would not gladly remain as he is, comfortable, complacent, maintaining the status quo? What man does not remain as he is so long as he does not know himself? That is, while content with his own gifts, 
and either ignorant or unmindful of his own misery. Accordingly, the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as it were, leads us by the hand to find him. I almost wonder if Calvin had the Church of Laodicea open in his Bible when he wrote that passage, that we think we are sufficient, we think we are rich, we think we're doing well, but there's actually this poverty, this nakedness, this shame, both as creatures and as sinners, we are so exposed, so vulnerable, so fragile. And it's interesting that I, I would guess that most of us would have a sense that if you get your doctrine of God wrong, if you look at God and you misunderstand who he is, you will get human beings wrong. You'll misunderstand what human beings are supposed to be like. Here, we're being reminded that it also works the other direction. If you misunderstand your own situation, you will project that wrongly onto God. You will be, thank you, Lord, that you haven't made me like those other losers over there. Thank you, Lord, that I don't hold all the wrong views about political issues like them over there. Thank you, Lord, that I and my four cool friends, we understand what's needed in the world. We're doing, and you will constantly relate to God if you do relate to God not only in a way that is false to your own situation, but in a way that projects falsehood onto him as well. And so here, Calvin reminds us, because they are a church that does not understand their own situation, they are a church that cannot discern the voice of Jesus. Because the only thing they expect from Jesus is, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Keep it up, guys. You're doing great. And because of that, they are tuning out any other possible message that might come from Jesus. And so we're reminded here that learned desperation not only arises from true knowledge of God, but also arises from true knowledge of ourselves. In many of these churches, it's been a theme, but we're reminded probably most forcefully through Laodicea that we are all prone to self-deception. We are all prone to evaluate ourselves wrongly and therefore to not be ready to hear and to receive the voice, the grace of Jesus. Second thing, and just real quickly, is the warning against being lukewarm is not a warning against being half-hearted, although that's a great thing to be warned against too. We should be zealous. We should be passionate. It is a warning to not be useless to the purposes of God in the world. When I was in college, there was this really famous moment, some of you might even know of it, and you can certainly find it online, where a famous pastor named John Piper spoke at a conference called the Passion Conference. And he actually wrote a book that came out of this talk called Don't Waste Your Life. And it was the, uh, the image of living your whole life kind of with the status quo in Western culture. You're just uh, pursuing comfort. You're just pursuing, you know, kind of all your desires and everything kind of goes well for you in life. And then you kind of retire in the last 10 to 15 years years of your life, and you're just walking on the shore, kind of collecting seashells, and then all of a sudden, you're standing before your creator after death, and you got nothing but seashells in your hands to show. This is kind of funny, but also poignant image, and, uh, and, and what Piper was pointing out is that it should be a holy ambition for all Christians not to be happy, but to be useful to God's purposes in the world to not waste our lives. One of the things as I get older that becomes more and more important to me by God's grace, by God's disruptive grace, is I care less and less as I get older. Certainly, I still care about it, and, and there's a lot of selfishness in me, of whether things feel happy, whether things feel fun, as much as am I being a part of what God is doing in the world? That that, and, and we'll come back to this next week, and, and I'm going to say it this way then, but the Jesus that reveals himself to these seven churches clearly to me seems to be a Jesus who cares about our holiness more than our happiness that cares about our being useful to the kingdom more than whether our own kingdoms are being built up. 
And that, I think, is always central to why his grace is disruptive when he shows up. There is an allusion here to uh, Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12, which is also quoted often elsewhere in scripture, like in Hebrews, where those I love, verse 19, I reprove in discipline. So the fact that Jesus is in their face, again, the fact that he is calling them to a deeper self-knowledge, to being more useful to his purposes, is ultimately because he loves them, ultimately because he is committed to them. And so third and final thing, and again, I think we see these in all the letters, which is It's not just that God's grace is disruptive. It's not just that if we're drifting from mission that he will disrupt us. It's also that how we respond to God's disruptive grace matters. At the end of the letter, there is this striking image I already mentioned that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. What's so interesting about that, among other things, is last week we read about a church, Philadelphia, where Jesus used the image of a door very differently. I open and nobody can shut. I shut and nobody can open. Jesus was the sovereign one over doors and he just shuts them or opens them. But here he knocks and he waits for whether you open. And it's a reminder that yes, God's grace has objectively accomplished our redemption. Yes, there is a very real sense in which we can say it is finished with respect to God's grace, but there is another sense in which it does not automatically apply to our lives like magic. We are not universalists. We don't think that Jesus did this, and now it does not matter how the world responds. That whether the church hears his voice, opens the door to him or not, is always central to Jesus's evaluation of that church. And so how we respond to Jesus matters. We'll come back to this next week very briefly. Here, Jesus threatens warns that if they don't hear his voice, if they don't open the door, he will vomit them out of his mouth like lukewarm water. To the church of Ephesus, Jesus said, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. You won't get to be a church anymore. To the church at Pergamum, Jesus said, if you don't hear my voice, if you don't respond to my call, I will go to war against you with the sword of my mouth. To the church of Thyatira, he said, I will throw Jezebel and all those who practice immorality with her on a sickbed until she dies. To the church of Sardis, I will show up like a thief in the night and take what is mine back against you. Only Smyrna and Philadelphia are not given fierce warnings because they're being faithful in the midst of already being disruptive One of the words I would use for this is that there's not only a pattern of reversal in all these letters. Those who think they're doing well are disrupted. Those who are disrupted are reminded that Jesus is pleased with them, that they're doing well, that that things are going to be okay. But there's also a pattern of reciprocity. It matters whether we respond to Jesus's voice. It matters what we do with the agency that he awakens by his grace in our lives. A church that discerns Jesus's voice is not just a church that can objectively describe true things about Jesus or even true things about themselves, but that subjectively is a church that is opening the door, is responding to Jesus. And so like in Psalm 95, like in Psalm 81, like here, let's be a people who are passionate to not just hear his voice, but to not harden our hearts in response to it. If we harden our hearts, ultimately, there is disaster. But if we respond to his disruptive grace, as uncomfortable as it is in the short term, it always leads to flourishing. Death is always followed by life. Um, Disaster is always followed by Jesus coming and putting together the pieces again. The question is whether we trust Jesus 
to do that even before the process starts. And that's why we need to know that he is the amen, the faithful and true witness that we can trust. And let's pray that we would be a church that trusts that about Jesus.